chapter 10, and we're going to read together from verse, uh, from verse 18. Verse 18 of John 10, the scripture reads here, No man taketh it from me, this was Jesus speaking, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, speaking of his life, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division therefore again among the Jews for these sayings, and many of them said, He hath a devil, and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem at the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's pray together before we just glean a few thoughts from his word this morning. Father, we ask today, as we gather in your house, we desperately long and need to sense your presence with us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies towards us. And we thank you even today for this opportunity of reminding us already of the importance of having a second birthday. The need to be converted. The need to be saved. And yet, Lord, as we gather, we pray, Lord, that it would not just merely be the matter of just thinking that once we're saved, it's all over. But, Lord, you may help us to see that we are on a journey with you. And that journey with you, you will endeavor to teach us, but ultimately make us and show us that we ought to be more and more like your precious son, Christ Jesus. So we look to you now for these moments as we spend this time around your word. We pray you may encourage our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. John 10 and 27 tells us, and speaks very simply of these words. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I want to ask you a wee simple question this morning. It's not to your neighbor, or it's not to your mother, and it's not to your daughter, or son, or father, but it's to you personally, and it's simply this. How well do you know your shepherd's voice? How well do you know his voice? You know, we know people's voices extremely well. We ought to know people's voices well. Those people that are close to us, those people, dare I say, that are kith and kin, those people that we meet with every day, maybe our work colleagues, if they ring us on the phone, we can instantly identify their voice. We identify the tone of their voice. Years ago, and I see some young people in church this morning, which is great to see it, and if you're sort of like anything below the age of 40, you'll know, you'll, I'll, I'll explain to you what this is all about. But those of you who are over 40 and are up a wee bit older, you will well truly know. Whenever I grew up as a cub and money more, we had a, tel- a telephone entered our house. And it was a telephone that was not like modern day telephones whereby, like whenever you ring it, there's an identification comes up on the screen. These phones didn't even have screens. 
This was long even before technology had developed that far. In fact, it didn't even have buttons. It had like this thing which was a circular, uh, like a circle on the front of it with all these wee holes opposite numbers. And the numbers were going right through from naught right through to one. It went naught nine eight seven six five four three two one. Now, if you're under 40, you likely have never used one of these contraptions before. But if you're over 40, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Whenever the phone first came to our home, I remember lifting the phone to ring my friend up the street. He lived about 500 yards up the, up the road from where I lived. His name was Fergie. And my dad says, what are you doing? Oh, I says, I'm ringing Fergie. He says, you'll set the phone down and you'll use your feet and you'll walk up and you'll wrap his front door. Those days you didn't ring people just simply because they lived 500 yards. Whereas today's generation, we're all into texting. We don't even talk to the people sitting next to us in our chair. We actually just text them, how are you doing? Uh, I am fine. Where are you at? I am sitting next to you. This is the way technology has gone today because we're not really into this whole business of talking anymore. We'd rather text people than talk. Well, lo and behold, whenever you lifted that old phone dial, you didn't know who was on the other end of the phone. So what you did was, in those days, you used to tune your ear. In fact, your ear was very attentive to who it was on the other end of the call because you wanted to... You want it before, just in their first few, dare I few, their first few words, before even they said their name, you want to pick up who it was. And if you, had, you were able to tune your ear well, you knew exactly, if you knew the person well, you knew, that, you knew their voice and knew their name even before they spoke it. Because you knew what you're listening for. And yet sometimes, folks, we ask the question, how well do we know our shepherd's voice? In the land of Israel, where we had the privilege of being not that overly long ago, although I never saw it personally whenever I was there, I suppose because we were too busy tramping around all our places, but I'm told that when the shepherd goes out to bring in the sheep or move his sheep from place to place, he's unlike the farmer of today's generation in our Western culture whereby he'll stand behind his animals with a bit of blue pipe and he'll endeavor to roar and drive them on and do what he has to do to get them to their final location. Not in the land of Israel. The shepherd knows his sheep, but the sheep know his shepherd's voice. He walks before the sheep. And as he calls, the sheep identify his voice. And what do they simply do? They follow. And that's the exact same position you and I are meant to be in, folks, that whereby when we hear or when we know his voice so well, when he speaks, I simply follow. I don't question his voice. I don't question his commands. I don't question his will. Even though at times, folks, the will of God is far from pleasant or easy. And those of you who are of our younger generation, maybe I'm, I'm not, don't think I'm, being derog- don't think I'm being derogatory to you, but sometimes life, young people, doesn't always work out the way you want it. There are people that stand up here this morning uh, from an older generation. They look back over their lives and life at times has been extremely difficult. Growing in adulthood and and then facing the trials of life in adulthood is not always easy. But yet the the wonderful truth is we know him as our shepherd with this great promise that he said he would never leave us nor never forsake us. That through all walks of life, through all that we might experience, he would always be with us. Would never be on our own. I wonder, do you know him this morning as you sit here in Points Past Baptist, young or old? Do you know him? Do you have, like what young Arne was speaking about this morning, a second birthday in your life? Maybe the shepherd's voice is a strange voice to you, and yet this morning he called you to himself. 
like the words in John, Matthew 11, when he said, Come unto me, all ye at labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Called you to come today. Well, I want to just leave with you five simple wee thoughts concerning his voice. And hopefully today that they may encourage and comfort your heart today as you listen for him. Because as his people, we ought to listen for him. Yesterday morning in my devotional book, it was all about the church at Sardius. And they were a people, the wonderful thing was they were a people that externally looked successful. Looked as if they were all active in the work of God. But the Bible said that the church at Sardius, they were dead inside. There were people that sadly, they looked on the external, that they were very much following the commands of God. And walking in fellowship. So whenever they met with other believers, people, because of their, the way they acted and the way they spoke, people thought, everything is rosy. Everything is great. But yet as God looked into their heart, God saw something completely different. They were living a lie. They're living in falseness. And it's very easy now, I'm going to tell you folk. It's very, very easy for any one of us, preacher and listener alike, very easy to live a lie, to live in falseness. And we come to church and we put on our, dare I say, our Sunday best, and we look the part. But we know in our heart of hearts, whenever we're we're in our own, sometimes it's a very different story. Well, I'm going to say to you, the the five wee points I want to leave with you are based around the thought, voice. My sheep hear my voice. The letter V, what I'm going to simply entitle it as, it's a verifying voice or it's a confirming voice to our hearts. Whereby, whenever God says to us, speaks to us, that undoubtedly he has, whatever he says to us in the quiet place, it is ultimately confirmed to us through his word. Like we have people today are telling us that God has said this or that or the other thing, and yet there is no word at all from the Lord that has backed up or confirmed to them what God has said. You know, God will not say to you something through someone else without primarily speaking it clearly to us through his own word to our hearts. He will not speak something that contradicts, contradicts what his word teaches. Because his word will never contradict what somebody, what a, dare I say, what someone else says to you saying, well, I come to you to bring you a word from the Lord, as it were. What does his word verify to us? I'm going to give you a number of thoughts. Number one, it verifies his love for us. Because in Jeremiah 31, we're told, he says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love and with loving kindness I have drawn thee. And in a few moments' time after this morning's service, we are going to remember that great gift of love that he had toward us and that he was willing to go to the cross on our behalf. John 3 and 16 is a great demonstration of his love toward us. In fact, John writes, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the world. And we as the people of God, those of us who are redeemed this morning, those of us who are saved, should always rejoice in the fact that we have, we, this, this love, the love of God is verified, it is confirmed to our hearts through his word. So it, when, in those times when, dare I say, when, when we're tempted to question the love of God, 
when through trials and difficulties, when we're tempted to question who God is, the love of God brings us back to the great fact that he does not change. And even though I don't understand his will, he loves me. And he will not permit anything to happen into my life outside the perfect plan of God. Let me say, not just as his word confirmed to us, verify his love, but his word verifies to us his lamenting. Remember in Jerusalem, whenever in Matthew 23, 37, it spoke about whenever Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that were sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee as a hen doth gather chicks under her wings? And then I say these words, but you wouldn't come. And there's this sense of lamenting from the heart of God that has confirmed us that those who he longs to draw to himself, there's this sense of stubbornness and hard-heartedness. For me, personally, as I went to Israel, I had this sort of a, dare I say, maybe a, a strange idea of what the Jew was like. And then we saw firsthand a defiancy when we came out of, we were walking down the, the side of the, the, the Mount of Olives and this, the, the, this group of Orthodox Jews were in a car and I saw a defiantness and a rebelliousness and, and I saw this sense by a real pure and utter stubbornness that was connected with them. And then I thought to myself, what must it be like in Christ's day when he went to his own? The Bible says in John 1, he said, he came unto his own and his own received him not. There was a defiancy, a rebelliousness against God, his only son. And yet sometimes in our lives as God's people, there can be defiancy against God's will. Maybe this morning you're here and you're not God's child and there's a defiancy. As he speaks, as he longs to draw you to himself, there's a sense of rebelliousness in your life. Well, I don't need him. I can live without him. Well, I'm going to have news for you. You can live without him. And there are millions that are living without him. But you see, if you die without him, you'll have lost everything. Not just is there a, a sense of, in his word, does it verify his love for us and his lamenting for us, but I also see this fact that he, what does he lament over? Not just he lament over those that sadly, who will not come to him, but he laments over those who stray from him. What I'm going to call the straying saint. Those that once where the fire burned brightly, those that once were keen, enthusiastic, those that once were zealous, those that once never missed church services. Those that once never missed prayer meetings and Bible studies. Those that once, maybe at a time, were involved, loved to reach out to people and won people for Christ. Just by, by uh, over time, and look, dare I say, this sense of uh, an indifference and lukewarmness that has slowly creeped into their lives. The fire is gone. The enthusiasm is gone. The zealousness is gone. And merely sometimes all as we end up just doing is just ticking a box. I think of Jonah, the man who God has called to go to the land of Nineveh. But Jonah says, but, but I know better. <laughs> I'll go my way. You know the story. And even in spite of whenever God eventually did like when he found himself on this boat, the waves came, storms came, he was down on the bottom of the boat. The men that owned the ship, they were like the, dare I say, your couriers of today, like 
dare I say, Prime or some other. They were moving goods from A to B. And he was on this ship sailing to Tarshish. And, and these men began to throw their wares overboard. That which was going to earn them a few bob to get to the other side of the journey. These were ungodly men. They were trying to save themselves. Jonah says, the problem is not with that. The problem was me. At least he realized he had a problem. He knew he was going the wrong direction. I wonder sometimes in our lives, does God not use his word to very simply and often sometimes uses problems and difficulties to correct us and to get us back into the right way? Maybe this morning you're like the prodigal son who says, well, let me, I'll go and sell by, Father, give me what's mine. He got his, his third, the third that was his by right. Away he goes and he squanders it all. He finds himself then in the pit or finds himself working with the pigs and he's, he's about to eat of their, the quill that was given to them. And then he thinks to himself, but surely the servants are at my father's house are, are far better fed than I am. But sure, if I return home, now listen, the prodigal could have talked about it for years. Could have talked about it for years. And it's wonderful, I do a little bit of visitation along with your, your previous pastor, Pastor Anderson. And on a Tuesday and a Wednesday I would do a bit of visiting for Belize. And sometimes we meet people on the journey and, and they talk about coming back to the Lord. They talk about coming back to their first love. The prodigal could have talked till he was blue in the face, but it would never have taken him back to the father. There was an action required. And if you read the story of the prodigal, it says these words. He says, I, he says, I will arise and go back to my father. And then it says these words, and he arose. So there was action there. And in our lives, folks, whether you're young or old or in between, there's action required in our parts if we are to know fellowship again with God. And the pastor may come, as he returns next Sunday, he will preach the word faithfully. But listen, unless there's action on your part, it'll merely go in one ear and out the other. And you'll continue to remain in that place, dare I say, of a strange saint. Now remember, he, the Father hasn't stopped loving you in your strange state. But he laments over you today. The voice of God that's a verifying voice. Let me say to you secondly, the, verifying, the, vo- the voice of God that is also uh, what I'm going to call an, an omnipotent voice. Theologians, men that are very well educated in theology will talk about the three O's of the character of God. So you have what is called the omnipresence of God. You have what is also called the omniscience of God. And then thirdly, you'll have the, omni, uh, the omnipotence of God. Now, don't ask me to spell those big O's because I'll go as far as zero at the O and I'll not go much further. But I'll explain to you simply what it means now. The omnipresence of God means that God is in all places at all times. You can't get away from the presence of God. So as believers meet throughout the world, whether it be in Africa or Ukraine 
or in South America, God's presence is there because he is an omnipresent God. In fact, the psalmist says, wherever I go, I can flee the presence of God. If I make my bed up in the heavens, God is there. And if I make my bed down in the pit of hell, God is there. He is in everywhere because God is an omnipresent God. You and I find that hard to believe. So some people say, often people talk about, Lord, would you keep, maybe even believers sometimes, and genuine, good, good folk, and there's a sense, Lord, keep the devil out of this place. Can I tell you something? The devil has a presence, but he's not omnipresent. He has a presence, but he cannot be in all places at all times, because he's not like God. God is in all places at all times. There are times the enemy, the devil himself, can indeed presents himself with a group of people, but not with all groups of people. Then you have what is called the omniscience of God, whereby God is all-knowing. So as you sit in church this morning, God knows exactly what you're thinking right now, whether your mind is in 40 other things as you sit in church. Maybe, maybe dare I say it, has been as, as brother... As our brother has, has said earlier, uh, that you, maybe that has been a, a difficult week. Maybe your mind is going to think about things that you're maybe going to be facing this incoming week. But he knows what we think. He knows all that we're thinking, all of the time. He knows whether our thoughts are spiritually, spiritually minded or carnally minded. He knows me. That's why I can't fool him. I may try to, dare I say, not try to fool God, but I may try to fool people by putting on a front. But God sees my heart. God sees your heart. And if anything else, folks, I'll tell you what it does do. It gives us a humility of spirit. And my dear friend, if there's not a humility of spirit about your life as a believer, I'm telling you there's something wrong. Because whenever you think that he knows me intimately, how dare I be arrogant or sell a sense of self-importance about anything or anyone? He's all-knowing. Then we see what is called the omnipotence of God. That means he is all-powerful. Right? Now I'll clarify another thing. The enemy of our souls who is called the devil has got power. And he has good power. The Bible says he's able to turn himself from, in, into a, an angel of light and deceive people. So he's this ability to come and portray himself as this pure light figure. But yet all along he's an ultimate the prince of darkness. He has power, but unlike God, Yahweh, our God, he is not all powerful. And so this morning I asked myself the question, if we think of the omnipotent voice of God, in what way do we see his power? Well, we see his power in nature, Genesis 1 and 2. Even though we didn't have to lift a hand, even though we didn't have to uh, manipulate things to come, just by the word of his power, just by his speech, that which was nothing became something. That which was empty became full. That which was blank became this beautiful canvas whereby we know that is the earth today in all its fullness. Just by the word of his power. 
We see his power, the omnipotent voice of God, demonstrated through even his servants. You remember Moses of old, this man who said, Lord, I can't go, I can't go. Remember at the burning bush, Lord, I can't go and speak to this man called Pharaoh, because Lord, I'm a man of stammering lips. So, so here he was, he was not, maybe speech did not necessarily come easy to him. Words just didn't easily flow from him. But yet God was willing to use him. And sometimes we look at the things that sometimes God has placed in But Lord, I, I'm, I'm not as gifted as other people. It's not about the fact. And sometimes I think in the church today we have to realize. It's not about the fact that whether I am as gifted or not. Like I would be loved to be able to sit and play a piano. But I can't play a piano as much as I try. I can't unless you would like the first verse or the first few notes of God save the king, that's as much as I can play with one hand, one finger. And I haven't done that in years. But I would love to sit and play musical instruments. But I haven't got that gift. We're all gifted differently. And so when God puts his hand upon your eyes, but Lord, so-and-so could do it better, so-and-so, and that's what Moses did. Lord, Lord, other people could do it better than me. But God says, I'm not asking other people. I'm asking you, Moses. And maybe there's a task, a job, right in this very assembly, what you can do, that God's asking you. You're saying, hey, but Lord, but I'm not as, I can't do it. So and so, they're working with children every day. They'd be far better at it than I am. But God says, but I'm not asking them. I'm asking you. When Moses would go into Pharaoh, you know what would happen, how that he would take his rod and he'd drop his rod and his rod would become a serpent. And then the, the, the magicians of Pharaohs would take their rods, drop them, they'd become serpents. And then, but then, but Moses' serpent would eat up their serpents. God's power demonstrated through his servants. And the wonderful thing is, folks, that God can just take ordinary people like you and me. And the wonderful thing is, folks, that he can demonstrate his power. We see his power demonstrated in our lives personally. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said. I, I even I am he who blotteth out thy transgression for thy no name's sake. And I will not remember thy sins anymore. So in a few moments as we sit around this table. We sit around this table to remember him who blotted out our transgressions. That which we couldn't do for ourselves. The power of God. Samuel Davis said who is a pardoning God like thee or who is grace so rich and free. We see the omnipotent power of God, the omnipotence of God, the voice of God, and the preserving of a saints. Because the Bible says that he keeps us. That we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. It says these words in Jude 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding great joy. He is keeping us as his people. That we are his and I am his, I am his and he is mine forever. So this undoubtedly, folks, rejoices our heart. Let me say to you, thirdly, the voice of God, it reminds us that the VOA, it reminds, it's an intimate voice. It's intimate. That he knows me personally. He knows you personally. Of all the people in church this morning, that he is interested in each and every one of us. He cares for us. In fact, John, John said in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice, a sense of intimacy. John Phillips says, those who belong to the shepherd recognize his voice and respond to his voice. Can I say something? The scripture tells us in Hebrews 12, it says these words, whom the Lord loveth, 
He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. There's a sense of intimacy there. Because it says, whom the Lord loveth. So there's a sense of intimacy. He loves me as an individual. But he says also that those whom he loves, he chasteneth and he scourgeth every son whom he receives. So whenever in times whenever you're prone to think, maybe going through a trial or difficulty, you might be prone to think, but Lord, it seems that I'm getting worse than everybody else. I'm getting it harder than everybody else. You need to remember in those times of difficulty, those times of chastening, those times of correction, you're not on your own. Because the word of God teaches that all children of God, all the children of God, at some period in their lives, will be chastened and will be scourged. And the reason why we're chastened and the reason why we're scourged is because that we are loved. Right? Because we're loved. You see, that's an awful hard way to be. Well, it's lovely to see some children in church this morning, some still in a prom or cut things, I don't know what they call these things now, and then others that are running about. Whenever I was a cub growing up in Money Moor, my, I say, I, we lived in the Northland, beside where John Boyce had the film station, and that's where my parents still live to this day. I don't know what I was doing out in the main street, but my mother heard me saying something. And I do not know what I said to this day. I do not know. But some words came out of my mouth that in my mother's ears were not extremely attractive or were very pleasant. So she did the nicest thing to me. She brought me to the kitchen sink. And she made me stand there at the kitchen sink. And then what she do, she said, just Nigel, stand you back a wee minute. And she'd open the cupboard in underneath. And I says, what's she doing? And she lifts out this thing that's called a bar of soap. And then she says, Nathan, just you open a wee moment. And I says, I open my mouth. And she put the bar, shoved the bar of soap into my mouth. Now she says, Nathan, you just suck on that a wee minute or two. And you remember the next time you say anything, this is the consequences you'll get. And so for a couple of seconds, I had a suck on this bar of soap while my mother washed my mouth out. Did my mother not love me? <laughs> oh, did she love me? She loved me greatly. In fact, it was because she loved me that she corrected me. It's because she loved me, she corrected me. And it's because he loves me, he corrects me. Hmm? Now we see a different character because all of us, I'm sure... All of us can look back to our childhood. Dare I say, as I don't take me wrong, but to this side of our congregation, we see a few older folk. That's the best way. Not the best way. Not all of them, but a wee bit older than some of the young ones on this side. Do you mean it wasn't bars of soap? Dare I say it was a rod out of this? Maybe it was a rod. My mother also had a, a. My mother used a wooden spoon. And she had it on top of these units in the kitchen. And she always had it in the centre. It was a very quick thing. She says, Nigel, come me into the kitchen. Into the kitchen. I go, she just reach up and swing and bang. And that was it. Done. Deed was done. There's no questions asked. It's not like you couldn't debate with my mother. It was just, once she reached up, she banged. And that was it. Till one day I did the wonderfulest thing. I went up one day and I couldn't, got myself up on top of the, the bench. And I moved the, the wooden spoon as far to one side as I possibly could. I'm telling you, I never moved that spoon again. Because she, whenever she come to reach for it and she couldn't get it, oh, her blood boiled all the more. 
And when she went this way about six inches, then she went this way about six, and then she went way back this way. And by the time it came down, I wish I, I actually wish I'd put it in her hand at the very first place. <laughs> but did she not? Did she love? Did she despise me? <laughs> did she didn't despise me? Oh, she loved me. Listen, the father's chastening, I read this wee saying, and I'm going to leave it with this wee thought with you. The father's chastening ought to be shrieved in three ways. Soberly, sensibly, and spiritually. Right? His chastening in our lives. Soberly, because he has his reasons for correcting us. Sensibly, because he does not despise us, he loves us. And spiritually, he is making us more and more like his son. Now that's the final objective here that God has for your life as a believer and my life as a believer. That when I get to the end of the journey, that it will take a very little, dare I say, a, little, a very little transformation for me to become more like him. Because as he has been, ought to have been working in my life, correcting and chasing me down through my period of life, then undoubtedly, but I might undoubtedly, whenever he comes or calls, that he wants to make me more and more like his son. Let me say also to you very quickly, his voice is a, a commanding voice. My brother-in-law served, served his time, should I say, served his life in the British forces, finished off, went done as a, whatever they call him, uh, I don't know what you call him, at 16 years of age, but he found himself at the end of the journey at 47, reti- 48, 49, retiring as a major I had the privilege of going to Edinburgh when they came home from Afghanistan and it was one of those places where it was a, a, a happy and sad place so as they came down the Royal Mile. We stood there to watch uh, with his wife and family as we watched him with his soldiers come back in from Afghanistan and it was one of those moving moments in your life whenever you see people that are standing at the side of the Royal Mile and you can see mothers as the tears are tripping them because sadly their sons never came home. And then you can see all their mothers and fathers and they're out with their banners and there's this jubilant joy about them because their son that went came back again. So there's a sense of mixed emotions as he stood in the Royal Mile that day. We went over then over to the army camp just out in Edinburgh and I went on, sat on the side, on, on the, just on the edge of the massive big parade ground and I listened as the commanding officer gave his command. And the moment he spoke, there could have been 600 soldiers and every one of them moved exactly at his voice. There was no hesitation. There was no sense. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, I, I'm not doing it today. <laughs> oh, no. He spoke and they obeyed. His voice, God's voice to me, is to be a commanding voice. And he's not like a commanding officer whereby literally when he speaks we're to jump to attention. But we are to do what he says. But because of our old nature, because of our old self, sadly we are at times a rebellious people. Maybe he has been speaking to your life about something and to this day you still haven't done it. Maybe you're still hesitant at obeying his voice. Well, you know that the scripture, the the outworking of the commands of God are for a simple purpose because their commands are given to be obeyed. You remember, he gave us a commandment in the New Testament when he said, he said these words, a new commandment that I give unto you. This was besides the Ten Commandments he gave given to Moses. 
Mount Sinai, here we find he says, now I'm going to give you a new commandment. Now what's this new commandment? He says that you love one another as I have loved you. So let's be honest, is it always easy to love the saints? Not necessarily. We have different personalities. We have different ways of doing things. Maybe I might do it one way and somebody else might do it a different way. And it's not that my way is wrong or his way is wrong, but the fact is, this is my way. I want to do it my way. This is the right way, but, but that way is the right way. But we have to realize that even though we might look at it differently or do it differently, the fact is that the job has been done. But the, this reality is that we're not, there's not to be a sense of division among the people of God, but there's to be this love among the people of God. And Sally Day, I, we're finding more and more, and I'm going to be truthful. I pastored a church for a short time, uh, only about just short of six years, and so I don't speak by any means by an expert. But I, I spent a little bit of time with people, and I realized the more and more I work with people, the more I love dogs. <laughs> you might think that's an awful thing to say, like that's an awful thing to say. But sometimes working with people, and, and, and you, you'll not tell me what to do. This is my life. How dare you stand in the pulpit and tell me that's wrong or this is wrong or the other thing's wrong. But it's not me saying this is wrong or that's wrong. This is, if, I, if what the preacher is preaching is God's word and what I'm doing is wrong in my life, I have to take it that God is speaking to me through the pastor, through the preacher, to my heart for a purpose. Because he's commanding me. He says not only do he commands us to love one another. Now, this is not an option, dear people. In the assembly at points past, if you don't love your brother or your sister, then you need to go and put your problems right between your brother and sister. Whenever you love somebody, you care for somebody. Whenever you love somebody, you, if, they, if they fall, you don't gloat that they've fallen. In fact, if they're weeping, you weep with them. If you're rejoicing, you rejoice with them. You don't be jealous because, oh, your man, he's pulling a brand new motor this morning. How can he afford to buy it? How can we not get a brand new motor? Or how can he afford it? How can any people afford to buy a big brand new, big brand new house? It's, see, whenever this world comes in, it'll not matter the type of motor I've driven. It'll not matter the type of house I've lived in. It'll all be futile and insignificant. But I'll tell you what will matter is how you love the church. Then the Bible also tells us, you know, there are other commands, very quickly. There are what we call the two ordinances. They're not Baptist theology. They're not brilliant theology. We call them biblical theology. One is called believer's baptism. It's not an option. It is a command to be obeyed. Repent ye and be baptized. It's a command to be obeyed. Oh, but I don't believe in believer's baptism. Well, my dear friend, if you don't believe in believer's baptism, don't be thinking I'm wrong. And Pastor, Pastor Moore say, I'll hunt that boy from by this place again. But why are you in a Baptist church if you don't believe in believer's baptism? It's a core belief of Baptist church. That you be baptized. But then there's another command. And this command is, do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians. See this table here in front of us. This is not an option for us as his people. 
come this morning to break bread to remember him who has died for us. Who has taken our sins in his own body. Listen, our time is gone. Let me say to you lastly, as I bring this all to a close, and you'll forgive me for going over time, but his voice is an enlightening voice. When he has promised to guide us, dear people. Do we always understand whenever, whenever he guides us, and sometimes the pathway that he guides us down is not always understandable to our, our wisdom or our understanding. When Israel tramped through the wilderness for 40 years, did they fully understand what God was doing? Did they fully grasp that in all these 40 years God was teaching them lessons as they wandered there round and round and round and round and round for 40 years? Dare I say they didn't fully understand. But they had to learn to trust the Father. When Joseph found himself in Potiphar's house and he's accused of this terrible deed that any man in today's society would still be, would would feel gutted by, worse than gutted by, if he was accused of such a deed. And this, he finds himself, because of a woman's lies, finds himself in prison. Dare I say if it happened today, the worst culprits, now I mean this now, the worst culprits, would be Christians. <laughs> There's no smoke without fire. There's no smoke without fire. He surely must have led her up the garden path. He had to be guilty of something. You mean to tell me that boy's in prison? That boy Jonah's in prison and he's there because he's an innocent man? A pile of nonsense. And today it's not the fact Guilty to prove, or innocent to be proved guilty. It's guilty to be proved as innocent. Finds himself in prison. Does he know what God's doing? He says, I don't understand, Lord. But I'm going to trust you. It's part of the pathway God had for his life. When you think of Job, this man who was an extremely wealthy man, and may I just clarify to you, there is nothing wrong with wealth. There is nothing wrong with riches. Some of the most godliest men I have met along life's journey have been very rich men. But their riches were never their God. That's the key. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Job was an excessively rich man. Just like Abraham was an excessively rich man. With herds and so many herds that they had actually herdsmen to look after it. But Job finds himself one morning waking up and life has changed. It's not just the death of one child. But it's the death of all children he has. What must that be like? I could never imagine it. Sometimes people, and we can be, dare I say, sometimes say things very flippantly and very easily. But unless you've actually stood in the shoes of someone who's lost a child, you'll never fully understand. Never fully understand the heartbreak. Sense that somebody has reached inside and just with a hand just pulled the heart clean out of you. 
can't see a way forward, can't understand why. And sometimes I'd be honest and say I used to be terribly sore on old Job's wife because she's the one who says, how's your curse God and I? But remember, Job's wife's the woman who's bore these children into this world. She has nursed them. She has fed them. She has watched them grow. While Job's away about doing his daily tasks like any man in the house waiting, she, she has seen them mature, coming, moving from crawling about the house till taking their first steps to speaking their first words. She's seen it all. And so in the light of what this this lady who's, dare I say, an emotional wreck, I'm convinced the way we look at Job's wife is, whenever she read these words, I'm convinced the best way of interpreting that wee verse of scripture is, Job, I just can't take any more. I've had enough. And sometimes in life, dare I say, Trials and tribulations, and we get ourselves to a place whereby we say, Look, Lord, I just can't take any more. But it's in those moments, folks, even though we don't understand what God is doing, we must trust our Heavenly Father. Tell me as I finish today, how well do you know His voice? How well do you know his voice? Mark, God bless you. Thank you.